Welcome to the Lord's Podcast with Will Rowe. Well, welcome along to the latest edition of the Lord's Podcast. Now that the dust has settled, we look back at what legacy Sachin Tendulkar will leave for the game of cricket and pose a tricky question about the little master here at Lord's. In the history section of the podcast, we catch up with former England fast bowler Bob Willis. Ahead of the bicentenary of Lord's Ground next year, we meet a Middlesex member with a special connection to this place and as the small matter of the Ashes series down under. Well, we're in the tavern stand today, which is a little change from our normal position up in the JP Morgan Media Centre. So we're looking out at Lord's square of the wicket on this nice cold winter's day. And it's my great pleasure to welcome my co-host this month. He played 46 tests for England, taking 177 wickets along the way, has had a career as a cricket journalist since his retirement in 2002, and he's the current Managing Director of Cricket at Middlesex County Cricket Club and also on the MCC Committee. He's very much part of the fabric here at Lords, Gus Fraser. Welcome. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm not so bad. I've got a bit of a stinking cold, but other than that, I'm all right. And a bit heavy-eyed after uh, watching... More of the ashes than I anticipated last night. I watched the first five overs, then it's the ten overs, then it's the first hour, and then you're lying in bed and you keep checking on your phone what the what the score is type of thing. So it grabs you, doesn't it? You sort of have, have the best intentions, and before you know it, the alarm's off at six forty-five. And there's a lot being made, even in this Ashes series, even though it's a couple ago now of, of of the first ball, and everyone talks about mm. Steve Harmison bowling it to Flintoff at second slip. Can you remember? Uh, the first ball was it? Was it always such a, a pressured environment? Um, I think it's. I think it became that. I'm trying to think now. I, the first ball because my first Ashes in 1991, um, we bowled. We got. I think we got bowled out for about 190. So I can't remember. I, we, were, we were batting, so I, I don't remember the first ball. We got about 190, then bowled them out for 150, um, and then sort of in a reasonable position and just capitulated on the on the third morning and, and Australia sort of knocked them off uh, quite comfortably. It was sort of quite a famous test match because Alan Lamb, who was the England standing captain, Graham Gooch had injured himself in the build-up to the test. Um, and he had been invited out by Kerry Packer to a casino on the night of the second, the second night of the game. And I think the sort of, I think Kerry Packer used to give his guests a sort of like a $10,000 chip and you could go in the casino and sort of, I mean, if you had a good evening, you could, you'd certainly earn more in one night than you would do for a, a complete tour uh, with England. So Lammy was not out overnight, went there and, and was seen sort of getting back in the hotel about one one thirty in the morning and only added four runs to his overnight score and we ended up losing by 10 wickets. So it wasn't a, uh, a great memory. And I also remember I didn't get picked initially for the 94-95 Ashes. Um, I was left out. And I was summoned. I went and played great cricket in Sydney, and I got sort of uh, in the middle of the week or three to four days before the three days before the test. Could you get up to Brisbane quick? Yeah. There's been a couple of injuries. There's an illness. Uh, the chicken pox. Yeah, in the camp. Malcolm had chicken pox. Yeah. And I just remember then sitting down and watching the first over, and Michael Slater cut Philip Defratis for four twice, and almost that was a bit of a, a sort of a major moment. Um, uh, in the way of here we go again type of thing and then obviously there's a Harmison to second slip uh, but equally Strauss was out I think in the first over of, of, of the 2010-11 Ashes but it didn't hold England back then so yeah it's it's a bit well it is I suppose it's like all these things you you work towards 
that point and um, you want to get it right and if you don't get it right I wouldn't say it sets the tone for the rest of the series but uh, um, it certainly um, highlights a, a nervousness if, if, if you don't get it right. Yeah, and uh, and upon retiring from the game, you then covered it as a journalist mm. for the Independent from well around two thousand and two to about two thousand and nine. Uh, how how was that shift from being on the field to then suddenly writing about the guys? I didn't. I, uh, I suppose that there's always a feeling that you're you're going to be compromised, isn't there? And the fact that you're going to be too uh, sympathetic towards the players and and not really write uh, nail them if they they've been having a a bad time but I've always felt that I've been pretty objective about things and I'm not just going to nail people because that's the easy line I'll, I'll criticise people if they've they've got things wrong and, and they've messed up but if they haven't you'll try and understand the situation because it's not always as straightforward I know a newspapers like it to be black and white but there's often most of your life's in the, in the, in the grey zone isn't it and that's sort of whether it's darker grey or lighter grey yeah. type of thing and uh, I know that maybe doesn't sell newspapers, light grey and dark grey. It's, it's, it's black and white that sells newspapers. But I don't know. I didn't worry about that, and I think I mean I, you upset some players over the over the over the course of your career because you say things, and maybe at times when you're working to deadlines, it's funny when you've got a deadline, you say right something's happened or the game changes very quickly, and you sort of been sat down for four or five hours, sort of contemplating how you're going to write this piece where it's going to happen then all of a sudden it sort of flips about in the last minute and you've only got half an hour to suddenly change 600 words uh, and get them to to the office um sometimes they're the best pieces you write because you just bang you go for it and you yeah. write without being too thoughtful through too it's what you think what you've seen get it down uh, but every now and then you might get the odd little situation wrong and a couple of times i did apologize because to players because I said yeah you're probably right I did get that wrong uh, sorry um, wasn't meant I mean I'm not got it in for you or anything but, but maybe sort of I, I didn't sort of get ev- everything in a row and other times you think well no actually I'm, I'm quite happy with that the, the fact that I did come down a bit stronger uh, on that occasion but no I didn't have a problem criticising players I mean uh, they've got to learn to I mean People have views, and it's a, again as long as you can argue those views and support you the view the stance you've taken, then then I'm very comfortable with that. Always very comfortable, and still am really. Yeah, absolutely. And since then, you've moved into a role as Middlesex managing mm. director of cricket. How how is it sort of then coming back to Middlesex? Yeah, I don't know where poached gamekeeper turned. I don't know where I'm <laughs> in time. I keep leaving from one side of the fence to the other as such. Um, whilst I suppose your playing career comes to an end and. What are, what are you going to do? And all, I mean, all right, if you're an England captain, you might get a, a job with Sky, or you've played a hundred Test matches. You're sort of things open, uh, and the less you've played, I suppose oh, I would say a bit. But the, the further down the food chain you go, as far as the, as being a sort of a prime candidate for the for the plum jobs, um, and the independent, I mean, the fact that the independent came along and that was sort of backed up with quite a bit of Test match special uh, work. It was more than I could have hoped for, really. I mean. Um, so when when that came along, it was a simple decision to retire uh, because it was such a great opportunity and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then seven years down the line, I suppose, I mean, my son had an illness, um, which sort of, again, he had, he's, he's very healthy now and everything's okay, but he had a, he had a sort of tumour on his brain and, and that was just before the 2006-07, actually, so I missed the first test there because 
it happened in October. Right. And you suddenly sort of think about things and the time you spend away from home and I'd sort of, if you're sort of a selfish so-and-so and, or, you're, or you're single and, and you haven't got sort of any responsibilities back in the UK, then being a, a, a journalist is a, is a great occupation because you're just travelling around the world at someone else's expense, following a great game, getting well looked after. But you, if, if you have, you're, you're suddenly spending like 25, 30 weeks of the year in a hotel room and it sounds very sort of exotic and glamorous and it, I, I, I'm not knocking it but it does wear a little bit thin um, after a while and you do think well actually I would like to spend some more time at home with my family. Um, your kids suddenly become teenagers and you can't buy those years back when they're 22 and you've done what you've done and you say oh, well come on Alex come on Bethany now I'm your best mate and that's going to have some well no you weren't you've missed that so I wanted to be around at that and that coincided with the Middlesex job um, um, creating this position the managing director of cricket and they advertised for it and I applied for it unfortunately I've got it so I've been extremely fortunate the fact that I've spent 30 years my 30 years of my working life to date involved in cricket and it's a pretty good industry to be involved in there's not there's not many nasty people around in the game there's a lot of good people and uh, there's a lot of fun and satisfaction to be gained from working in it. And I'd like to ask you a few questions on that now. Um, it leads nicely into our Twitter Twitter questions, which is a new feature on the podcast that we did last month with Mike Gatting and you're now next in the firing line. So Right, pull and get again. Here we go. Um, this one's from James Rowland. Who is the best batsman you ever had to bowl to? Well, I, I look back at the area that I played and all right, the English side that I played for didn't have anywhere near the same sort of success as the current side but I, I look back I don't envy the current players or anything like that I mean it'd be nice to have earned a few more money a bit more money but but the lifestyles we had and uh, the way that we played the game I think uh, was, was was better than them in many ways because we had greater freedom there wasn't under such spotlight and scrutiny and also played against some great players I mean it was I'd say Tendulkar's retirement is almost <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the end of an era, really, isn't it? Um, sort of my era, to be honest. He's the last of the great players that sort of came through uh, when I was or I played against. And the, there are other, obviously, your Warns, your McGraws, your, your Wars, your Healy's, your Inzermans, your Wackars, your Wazims, your, all the West Indians with Richard, Richie Richardson, Ambrose Walsh, etc., etc. Uh, so some one Martin Crowe, some some really top top cricketers that were were around. And you feel chuffed to bits that you've actually played against them and, um, and, 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 and been able to pick your wits against some really great cricketers. But of the people that I bowled at, uh, I always put Lara at the top by a little distance. I played against Tendulkar on his first England tour in 1991. It was only looking on YouTube, actually, that I realised, this was a few years ago when I was asked to write an article, that I was the one who scored the 100th runoff, his first 100. So yeah. I didn't realise that until I suddenly sort of watched it on on YouTube and saw him sort of push me through extra cover for three runs uh, to, to bring up his first international hundred. So uh, I'd sort of play my role and get him on his way. But <laughs> that was the only time I played test cricket against uh, against Tendulkar in 1991. And he was only about 17 at the time. So he was making his way. Uh, obviously watched him a huge amount as a journalist and as a, as a cricket fan and just loved watching him. I mean, wonderful player. Um, uh, an all-time great, but Lara was the the, the, the biggest cricketer that I <coughs> had the pleasure of playing against. Um, we got a hundred here at Lords against um, Middlesex for Warwickshire one year. 
hit John Embry actually. It would have gone over the pavilion, I think. The ball got wrapped in the flag at the top of the um, top of the flagpole above the Middlesex dressing room. So Albert Trotts. Record still stood. Yeah, it does. Uh, it was into, uh, Pollard had a good go at it, didn't he, the other yeah. year? And sort of hit the lift shaft at the back. But, uh, like I say, playing against Lara, he's got 375. He got other hundreds um, along the way. And I think he he was someone, if he was batting, and uh, you'd, you'd sit down and watch it. You wouldn't yeah. sort of leave the room uh, because you never knew what was going to happen. A glorious, <coughs> destructive player. If it was his day and he was in the mood, it very, very difficult to bowl at. And you look at the history of the game, and he's probably played half a dozen of the best, half well, six of the best fifteen innings that have ever been played. And is it true that there's a there's a Gus Fraser wing in one of Brian Lara's house yeah, in the Caribbean? Quite a few of my contemporaries are getting sort of stands named after them around. I mean, you go to Somerset, there's a Andy Caddick Pavilion. You go to Worcester, there's a Graham Hick Pavilion. There's Alex Stewart Gates at. Uh, at the Oval, you've got to do a bit more than I did to get something named after you at Lords, <laughs> Compton, Edrich, Warner, Allen. Um, but yeah, Lara sort of built a beautiful house with the proceeds that he made from scoring three seven five in Trinidad, and he named areas of that house after the bowlers that had bowled at him to, and allowed him to amass the fortune. So I've got a, an area of Brian Lara's house named after me. Uh, nothing at any cricket ground, but uh, a little bit somewhere in Trinidad. Absolutely. Uh, next question from Twitter. This is from Tom Cox. What was your biggest highlight of your career and what was your biggest regret? Highs and lows, really. Um, I thought the biggest regret was never winning the Ashes. Uh, um, thankfully achieved a lot. I had won one-day tournaments at Lords with Middlesex, won championships with Middlesex, won one-day competitions with Middlesex. So, all right, the last... Maybe five or six years of my career were at Middlesex. We, we sort of tapered off and, and fell away as a club. But all in all, for 12 or 13 years, we were, we were one of the top sides in the country. And we won things quite regularly. So that was very satisfying. Um, and as I say, personally, obviously very proud of what you achieved as an England player. It would be nice to have done a little bit more. And, but for an injury and, and some selection issues, I, I may well have played another 20 tests and got another 75 wickets. And probably that would have been... I'd have said, yeah, that's that. That's about where I'm at. So, yeah, I I say not winning the Ashes um, again, but playing against a great Australian side was a was a thrill. Um, but 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 not having won that, and and obviously seeing the way that um, players that have won the Ashes are, are viewed um, uh, would have been would have been nice. And and highlights, I think, I suppose there were individual games. Um, winning in Barbados, um, we, which was in 1994, 93 94 uh, winter. I got eight for in, in Barbados. Alex Stewart got 100 in each innings. I think it was the first time England had won in Barbados for over 50 years. And it was one of those, again, I love touring the West Indies because West Indies because they're small, intimate sort of grounds with a really <coughs> unbelievable atmosphere, sort of uh, excitable. And it was a sort of start of the England sort of barmy, not the barmy army, well, it might be the barmy army, but England's major support when they were abroad. And I think sort of 15,000 people inside Kensington Oval and half, seven or 8,000 of them would have been English. Uh, and sort of a full house on the fifth day when we won that game. And that that was special. And beating South Africa as well. Uh, we beat South Africa in a five-test series 2-1. Uh, and I managed to get a few wickets in that series. So... 
Yeah, lots of highlights. I mean, along the way. I mean, even though I say the ultimate would have been winning the Ashes, which sadly we failed to do. Lovely. Our next question from Menno Faulkner. Uh, Jimmy is often seen as the world's best bowler, but how does well? How do you rate him and Broad in Australia? I guess he's hinting at the height and pace and balance of Broad down under. It's an interesting one because <clears throat> Anderson. I mean, at the, at, he did a, a program with Sky, a bowling masterclass, and it's as good as I've seen. The skill, the the precision that he added to his bowling, and you were watching something there that was in a different sort of league to to anything I sort of felt that I could do, and I thought I had pretty good control. Um, so Anderson is an exceptionally skilled bowler. Um, I suppose the thing you, at the end of the day, it's your career, and his career averages is thirty, which is modest. I mean, it's not; it's still reasonably good, but it's not sort of Dale Stane, who's averaging twenty one, twenty two. Um, so, I mean, England have got some some fine bowlers um, in, in Anderson and Broad, and uh, but are they going to be all? T- I mean, Anderson will be because of the volume of wickets that he's taken. He's probably going to be England's highest ever wicket taker. He'll go past both, I'm sure, in the next year or two. Um, but is he as good as your Ambroses, your Marshalls, your Dell Stange, your Richard Hadleys, your Dennis Lillys, um, people like that? Wazim Akram, possibly not. Uh, and you sort of say that, and all of a sudden you sort of I'm aligning myself up for a kicking from someone here who's saying, "Well, you're a bitter and twisted old so and so." But you've got to look at these players' records, uh, and sort of Jimmy Anderson is a magnificent bowler, an outstanding bowler, and he's got better and he's been better for the last four or five years. But over his career, or now comparing his career to other players, other players have performed more consistently throughout their careers. So. Um, He'll 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 be remembered as well. Obviously, one of England's finest bowlers. But um, is he as good as Richard Hadley? Is he as good as Dale Stane? Is he as good as Malcolm Marshall? Um, no. Um, sorry to be blunt, but no. Um, Stuart Broad is a is a wonderful bowler too, and I think again he took five wickets uh, on the first day opening day of the Ashes, which is a, is a cracking achievement. He seems to uh, rise to the challenge and just have magnificent days where he's he's, he's almost unstoppable um, and again his maybe bounce um, and his ability to move the ball means that he's probably got a little bit more threat than, than Anderson who's very skillful swing seam uh, and and skiddy but the extra bounce that Broad's got probably means that he's likely to be a bit more effective um, over the course of his career. Well talking about greats of the game just a moment ago um, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast uh, Sachin Tendulkar has retired from Test cricket, and as you were saying a few moments ago, it's certainly an end of an era. Tendulkar goes to 100. He does it with one of the hardest shots in the game, executed perfectly. That is a marvellous performance. And we were playing just a warm-up game, and we'd heard about this young star who'd just made 300 in a school game. And he came out in those spongy pads that he used to wear, and... Uh, you know, he just smashed us for about 30 or 40, and we were the England side there, and I thought, crikey, as a young schoolboy, this lad can bat. In recent times, he and Brian Lara have taken the batting honours for outstanding uh, batsmanship at the very highest level. I think the legacy he's left is that he has emb- he embarked on, at age 16 on what has now become the greatest 
cricket and career all the time. I mean, that is one thing I feel I can say with no argument from anybody else. You know, his rise is absolutely linked in with the rise of India as an economic superpower, as a cricketing superpower. Um, his career has, has spanned that rise completely. So I think, put him in context, you know, it's a bit bigger than just a, a, a great player who scored runs off, of his own accord. It's, it's a bit bigger than that. He was the first cricketing superstar. I mean, I, I think there's so many a lot of the Indian players have sort of followed in his footsteps recently, but you know he was the first guy that had to deal with that incredible attention at all times, uh, as well as um, you know the, the kind of the, the pressure of having to perform in different forms of the game. So uh, his legacy is to be able to do all of that, but do it in a kind of humble, gentlemanly fashion, which is what he was so good at. Tendulkar reminded us that his strokes could be as pure as ever. Few familiar voices there for cricket fans uh, discussing Sachin Tendulkar. There's quite a lot in that, Gus. But I mean, I guess the overriding thing is that he was truly one of the greatest batsmen that's ever played, and he'll be looked on as that in 1500 years' time, and quite rightly so. Um, whether anybody goes past him is questionable. Uh, the volume of runs, international runs he scored, uh, the number of international hundreds he scored. Um, you do wonder whether. Uh, and even in the same way that is Don Bradman ever going to be gone past whether whether this fellow's going to be gone past but he never quite managed to get on the honours boards here at Lords I'd like to segue into a little chat about the Lords honours boards and certainly not picking on Sachin Tendulkar because as we'll see in a moment's time there's some very very good names that also didn't manage to do that as well but uh, for all the tourists that come to this ground and go on the, the famous Lords tour often the, the stewards that take them up into that, the away dressing rooms, the certain notable names which aren't on there. Um, Brian Lara, Sachin Tendulkar and Shane Warne are just three to mention. Monorithrin, Ponting. There you go, two more. Um, I've tried to make this a little bit easier for, a, easier for us, Gus. I've picked Wisdom's all-time 11, which they released this year. And, um, well, if we just start there and then we can, we can try and come to... In the next few minutes, um, who we think is mm. the greatest never to get on the board. So just looking at that, WG Grace never made it on the honours board, but slightly different era. Um, Sachin Tendulkar didn't do it. Wazim Akram, he took two four wicket. Um, uh, his best was um, four for 66 in 1992. Waka Yunus took five for in that game. And Shane Warne as well. I mean, just looking through some That's of his names. one, Wazim, because I hadn't sort of put him in that, but quite rightly, he should be there because he is one of the all-time greats as well as a left-arm uh, seen by. It's, is it chance? I suppose it, it is chance to begin with. Um, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be up there a couple of times and all right, playing at home, um, you've got a better chance, especially now because you're playing two tests a year uh, as an England player. When I sort of started, it was still... Some years there were two, some years there were one. Um, but they, they weren't, the honours boards weren't up at the start of my career. Then all of a sudden, I can't remember what years they, 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 they suddenly appeared on the wall in the dressing rooms. And again, there's a bit of um, disagreement about where the honours board should be. I mean, there are a lot of MCC members who think that the honours board should actually be up somewhere in the pavilion so that the public can see or the members can see. Uh, but I don't think I don't I think that they're right where they are. They, it's, a, it's a private thing. It's a players' thing. They should be up in the dressing room because that's where. Uh, and they are extremely inspirational, and I suppose every player, well, every player does come here hoping that uh, they will get on those boards, and that the you miss uh, as a tourist, 
every four years. So you might be lucky and you might get three chances in eight years. Mm. Uh, you might only get one chance in seven years, depending on when your career sort of, um, how your career sort of unfolds. Um, but the longer it goes, the bigger the pressure. And you could see it. Um, someone like Tendulkar, someone like uh, Lara, someone like Ponting. Um, they didn't look the same here as at other grounds because I think that that weight of expectation, that desire to be on there uh, and for people in 50 years' time to be being shown around laws long after we've all gone uh, and, and, and the fact that your name is up there is is something that um, you're exceptionally proud of. I don't think Tendulkar would foregone the fact that he'd maybe he'd, he'd say, well, I'd, I'd be happy with 9500s and as long as one was at Lord's. Uh, because getting to a hundred hundreds is, is is remarkable, but I'm sure if you went to to people like Ponting um, and Lara, Gilchrist, say Jack Callis, um, these these sort of figures, they would they would quite happily change exchange two or three hundreds elsewhere for a, a hundred here. Do you think it's harder for the bowlers to get on the honours board? <coughs> um, well, I'm going to be a biased bowler and say, well, of course it is. Um, as a batsman, um, there's no limit to how many runs you can score. Well. There is, but I mean, like Gooch can get 333, can't he? But the most wickets a bowler can get in a match is 10, and if this in an inning, sorry, is 10. Um, and if there's four bowlers competing for it, I mean, yeah, you've got to you've got to shine out from the pack. So there is it is it is harder for a, a bowler. I always remember, I mean, Shane Warne again um, in the 2005 Ashes. Um, England lost at Lords, didn't they? It was McGrath got his, did he get his 500th test wicket or something like that? Because he changed he did, his boots yeah. got his and got gold boots. I mean, McGrath got a five here every time that he played. And I remember Warren being off, Australia had won the game, England were nine down. It was just a question of when Simon Jones was going to get out. And Warren was bowling from the nursery end, and there'd been a couple of heaves, near misses, chips into gaps, and he'd that, he had four wickets, so he was clutching for his five. And then McGrath was bowling at the pavilion end and uh, Jones edged the ball to Warren at first slip uh, at a, for a, as a, ca- a catchable height. And you thought, it was, I think it was a fourth or fifth ball of the over, and you thought, well, Warren could shell this. So it wouldn't make any difference to the game, but it means that he'd probably get his five for in the next over. Uh, but now he held on to it. And, and, and so with that went his last chance of getting a five for at Lord. So, um, yeah, I mean, again... I suppose when you've achieved what you've achieved, it might it might might not be as big a thing to some of them as, as others, but I'm sure every time that they now since the retirement they walk into that dressing room they wish well it'd have been nice if one of the my outstanding performance would have been there. Well now, as promised at the top of the podcast, we meet a Middlesex member whose family have been associated with Lords since the late nineteenth century. His name is Peter Beaton. Peter's grandfather, William, worked at Lord's from 1890, which is the same year that the current pavilion was built. William, who was known as Sam, was a pavilion steward here at Lord's in the late 19th century and early 20th century, and amongst his duties, he'd have to draw W.G. Grace's baths. Uh, Peter's father also worked as Lord's later. He was an attendant in the real tennis courts, and his mum was a cook in the staff canteen. So uh, quite a family history here at this, this great old ground. Um, as a young boy, Peter would often play at number six, Grove End Road, where his granddad lived. And um, he recently brought in some artefacts to Lords uh, for me to have a look at, one of which was a lovely photograph. In it, we can see his grandfather, Sam, standing with a tray of drinks during a tea break between Middlesex and Gloucestershire from 1933. 
I caught up with Peter in the MCC Museum to take a look at the photo. Twelfth man didn't take out drinks. No, it's this lovely photo here. Yes, yeah. yes. But he would take out drinks at drinks interval, and there'd always be a pint in the middle for the fast bowler. <laughs> and so, no, yeah. Yes, energy drinks, no. There'd be a pint in the middle for the fast bowler. Orange juice is all round. Right? So the fast bowler always have a pint of ale oh, on, yes. on that drinks tray. Oh, yes. Cigarettes as well? No, no, no. no. Not, not in the middle? No, not in the middle, no. Even then? <laughs> I don't think it was unknown for somebody to have a quick drag on the boundary, but, uh, but uh, no, there'd be a pint in the middle for the fast bowler. And, of course, uh, initially we had gentlemen and players uh, exiting from different places. Hence the bowler's bar. Indeed. Middlesex member Peter Beaton there uh, talking about his family's time here at Lords and how things have changed, which uh, is listening to that greatly so, Gus. They have. I mean, it's interesting when I started, uh, and it, they're also a heading thing. Uh, when you used to go out for lunch in the pavilion, there were a couple of tins of light ale on the table, uh, in the middle of the table as you went in. But, and I always remember John Embry once, when we had a drinks break, asking the 12th man to bring him out a lager shandy in one of those sort of the, the, the sort of uh, the plastic drinks bottles so that you couldn't see what was in it. Um, <laughs> but now to sort of think that you're going to get alcohol out in the field or during the day's play now is quite rightly something that you don't you don't contemplate. But uh, again, you'd sort of look back in the gentlemen's and players. And that's part of the beauty of this ground, isn't it? I mean, I, I suppose it's the same everywhere, but most a lot of other grounds pavilions have been knocked down and therefore with that the sort of the the different things and and whilst internally lords has changed from where it was maybe 60 70 years ago um but let's say the two gates the gentlemen that come out the main pavilion entrance or pavilion entrance that the players come out now uh, the players used to come out from the entrance sort of between the pavilion and the warner stand uh, and the bowlers bar name because that was where the players changed and players tended to be bowlers, batsmen tended to be gentlemen, uh, hence it's called the bowlers bar. So no, I, I always a little think there's a story behind uh, so many things that are, that are here and, and they're, they're, they're lovely and you just sort of just want them to be maintained really. I mean, uh, you don't want them suddenly to, well they're not going to knock the pavilion down, that's for sure, but uh, uh, the fact that sort of the, the history of the game is represented here, I think, is, is something that um, I'm sure the MCC will, 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 will look to continue with. Lovely, and I'll make sure that the <coughs> people listening to this, that the photograph that we're looking at is up on the website with um, well, they're out there Peter Beaton's father. Yeah, his grandfather said that the stewards used to take out the drinks at the drinks break, not the 12th man. But there's a bloke there in a dark three-piece suit and, yeah. and a tie on. There's two with sort of really like proper drinks people aren't they rather than the 12th man running along with a with a with almost like a, a bag full of uh, soft drinks yeah absolutely and there, there's a I think as he was saying a pint of ale for the fast bowler so that would have suited you back in the day <laughs> no never never <laughs> just straight to your head absolutely fantastic well um, moving on now I'd like to talk about Bob Willis. The former England bowler was here at Lords last month. As one of just four bowlers to take more than 300 test victims for his country, it's no great surprise that Willis managed to get three five-wicket hauls here at the home of cricket. I caught up with Willis on the balcony of the pavilion and asked him what he remembers from the first of those against Australia in 1977. Well, it's always great taking wickets against uh, the old enemy. It was... Um, uh, 
it was the Jubilee uh, Test Series. Um, uh, Australia's side were a little bit uh, under the cosh because uh, the Packer Series was about to be announced, so they weren't uh, a particularly unified bunch. But they uh, they played some good cricket here at Lords, and surprisingly, I took a few wickets from the nursery end. I always much prefer bowling at the pavilion end at Lords, but. Uh, to pick up seven wickets against Australia at the home of cricket, very, very special indeed. And the honours boards weren't physically there, but you must have known you know, to, to take a five-wicket haul at Lords. Is it something you sort of dreamt about growing up? Yes, people compare hundreds with five-wicket hauls. I think it's much more difficult to take five wickets in a test match than it is to score a hundred. I think four wickets is probably equivalent to a test match hundred. So if you can get a five-wicket haul, it's uh, definitely very special. And uh, Michael Hunt here and uh, dear old Jim Fairbrother before him make pretty flat batting pitches at Lords. Uh, they want the matches to go uh, well into the fifth day. So pretty hard work for bowlers. So to get a five-wicket haul at Lords, certainly uh, your name should be engraved in stone, not just being on the honours board. A forthright Willis there on getting his name up on the <laughs> honours board. Um, I guess in the in the in the bowlers union, you, you probably agree with him. Yeah, I, I I like Bob. I mean, again, I say I'm good friends with Bob and uh, see quite a lot of him when at Sky and at, at other functions and sort of people's perception of him because of his the way that he sort of commentates or is is uh, is is wrong. Um, yeah. He there are other people who say the first things that come into their head and sort of don't really back it up but if, he, if Bob says something he's given it a lot of thought and um, quite often he's right um, and even though at times he might sort of seem a bit dour and miserable his, his assessment of situations is, is very good and he doesn't sort of he doesn't sort of mess around as such so I've got, and, he's, and he's good fun away from cricket as well so I'm very fond of Bob and a wonderful bowler and it's little things like from him I mean People know that every day of his career he went running, and I say it's something he sort of said when I sort of when I sort of broke to, when I was talking to him when I sort of started to break into the English side and met him. He used to go running every day if he was sort of religiously. I mean, yeah. if he wasn't if he bowled, then he wouldn't go for a run. But obviously, on any other day, he'd go for a run, and it's something that I adopted. So, if we had a field, if we had a batting day at Middlesex, I'd do ten laps of the ground at the end of a day's play, sort of a thirty-five, forty-minute run, just to. Because getting on your feet, getting your legs used to it, and stuff like that. So, um, although he sort of looked a bit out away with the fairies, and you always sort of remember him rushing off the field at Headingley, don't you? Almost like in a trance, um, sort of having taken eight for there. Um, he was, uh, in many ways, I suppose, quite a lot ahead of his time because, much to the annoyance of his county, he didn't sort of run in and bust a gut for, for Warwickshire day in, day out. He paced himself and saved himself for England. And, I suppose that might be why he got 320 test wickets and I ended up with 180. Because <laughs> he worked out that the, the place to save it for was, 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 was international cricket and uh, a fine bowler as well, a hostile bowler. Um, he was a bowler that obviously a lot of people, my brother and I, we used to sort of imitate when we were young, sort of with the right hand sort of flapping to his side and coming in at an angle or coming in and then like an, almost like an S-shaped runner, wasn't it? Because you, you came at an angle, didn't you? Yeah, it wasn't sort of mimicking him. That well, that wasn't it. <laughs> I think that sort of just became uh, towards the back end of your career because your, your body gets older and stiffer. It's, you find it harder to get round. So if you're at an angle, you're almost 
you're halfway there as it is. But uh, <coughs> no, Bob's a, a well, a magnificent bowler, and and I've enjoyed him as a as a as a broadcaster too. And he's got a kind of understated sense of humour, hasn't he? Almost? Yeah, cheeky in a way. I think some people sort of don't understand when he's actually being sort of mischievous and fun as well. It's sort of uh, it's the presentation, isn't it? It's sort of uh, no, he's he's a he's he's good company. He's good company, and had a few sort of social lunches with him over the years. And you don't struggle for conversation with him. It sort of just sort of flows, and he, he's obviously got opinions. It's your county's hundred and fiftieth anniversary here at Lords next year. Goes without saying, really. Gonna be looking forward to that. Yeah, big year for the club. Um, hundred and fifty years. I mean, it's it's one of the older clubs or county clubs in the in the country, and it sort of links with the MCC's two hundredth year playing here at Lords. So a big year for the ground. Um, a number of dues and, and 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 functions and things that have been organised throughout the year. Um, we've actually made our little. I mean, something I've done. In my position, we're we're going back to the old cable knit sweaters. I mean, the modern sweaters now are sort of the ones, sort of almost like those sheen material ones with your name and your number on the back, and a bit like football shirts, aren't they, rather than cricket jumpers? So, uh, as a sort of for the hundred and fiftieth year, we're going to go back to the old cable knit cricket sweaters, which I prefer. Um, So you bring in those the the kind of the cream ones. Yeah, they kind of yeah. Yeah, the sort of the the old fashioned. The old fashioned ones. So is that just for a year, or is that going to be? Oh, we'll see. Are you going to try and sneak it in for good? Uh, I don't know. I I prefer them. I prefer them. I I prefer the look, and I can understand why people want the other things because it has got the. It's easier to identify players from the boundary. Um, But yeah, it's just a small little thing. It'd be nice to get a bit more retro, but um, I don't think we sell enough merchandise to go completely retro. Maybe with our one day kits as well, but. Yeah, we'll leave it as it is. Um, but no, it's it'll be nice, and again, it'd be nice to us for us to have a good year with, yeah. with that. And by that, I don't mean sort of all of a sudden you start setting targets about we're going to win this, we're going to do that. But uh, uh, as a club, our goal is to be up there competing every year, and um, in four day cricket and in white ball cricket, and hopefully we can improve on last year and and, and push that a little bit harder. And who knows what's going to what can happen if you if you if you're up there. Uh, competing in the last month of the season. And you're looking forward to Christmas then? <clears throat> yes. I I don't know where the winter goes. Um, you sort of sit down at the end of September absolutely uh, stuffed from a sort of emotionally and w- sort of exhausting period and you think, nice to get a, a few weeks off, but all of a sudden it's December, it's Christmas, and once you get to Christmas, you come back from the Christmas break, bang, it's only two months and one of the months is February so it just seems to fly by the winters but I haven't got a great deal planned um, hopefully I'll be doing a bit with Sky um, yeah. I quite enjoy that I mean again people sort of say well that's not time off but I find it quite good to sort of be in there um, talking to different cricketers watching different cricket around the world you just get a, a better appreciation of what's taking place And um, although I don't know how many people sort of sit up at night watching uh, India play New Zealand or, or whatever the, the test matches that sometimes are over Christmas because I'm not in the A team at Sky which sort of, sort of covers the Ashes as such uh, but I, I enjoy I enjoy watching that and uh, to do a bit of Sky and uh, just um, trying to rest I haven't had a holiday yet I could do with a holiday <laughs> do you know anywhere to go that's cheap <laughs> <laughs> not not right now but um, 
I mean, when you're at Sky, is, is it nice to kind of catch up with old pals of the game, I guess? A little bit. Um, it's, it's interesting, because when I, when I became a journalist, you almost sort of thought, well, that would... You spend a lot of time with former teammates like Nasser or, or, or Mike Atherton, uh, or Ian Botham or David Gowan, people you play with. But you don't, because as a written journalist, it's a different lifestyle to the, a commentator. A commentator sort of, obviously, is there working during the hours of play, whereas a journalist, your work almost starts when the play finishes, and by the time you go out for your evening meal, they've they've already eaten or done what they've wanted to do, so you didn't actually catch up with them as much as possible, but yeah, I did, and now you sort of spend some time with Mark Butcher, Rob Key, Dominic Cork, um, Ramps, people like that, well, obviously Ramps because he's at Laws, but um, a number of other, Robert Croft, sort of blokes that you've played a bit of cricket with and, and, and get on well with, and I say you just sit there, like a couple of mates sort of chatted throughout the night being silly so-and-sos, uh, watching some cricket and then if there's a bit of rain or during the lunch and tea intervals, we sort of jump into action and obviously try and describe <laughs> what's taking place. So it's not too arduous, but no, it is a good time to sort of catch up and and, and I suppose to think cricket in a, in a, in a sort of outside the Middlesex bubble, which you sort of, you sort of tend to get into. And I think it's important you sort of try and see a bigger picture than just um, what's taking place within, in Middlesex's case, within the, the four walls of this ground here. Absolutely. Do you ever get sort of stuck in a, um, it was different in my day mindset, or do you try and take yourself out of that, as it were? Do you have to, do, I mean, you've obviously trained as a journalist to do that quite well. Um, do, do you find maybe pundits naturally slip into that without almost knowing it? I, I, it's a difficult one because whilst... You, you don't want to sort of, and it sounds like it would be like a Fred Truman type figure, though. I don't know what's going off out there, didn't happen in my day type of thing. And I realise that the game the game moves forward and, and the changes that are made, they're not, most of them are for the good. Um, the, the, the greater attention to detail, um, I think it can go slightly over the top. Um, and again, I, I don't know whether at times the sort of, because TV coverage is so good now and you see so much like the ball comes out of a bowler's hand and you can see the seam rotating and you can see the stitching on the seam so you, you see so much now and the edges and little sort of batsman's techniques and things like that and and whether that sort of I don't think that helps it's people say oh we can I don't know because you then become too precise and and it's difficult you've you sort of become too technically orientated rather than getting out there and getting the thick of a battle. If it's if it's a game of cricket, it's me against you. I'm the bowler, you're the batsman, I'm trying to get you out. I don't want to spend as I want to spend as little time as I can out there and you're keeping me out here, so I want to see the back of you. And it's getting in that battle that's important and obviously you need to sort of trust your technique behind. Um, so sometimes maybe you, you, and you sound a bit old fashioned, but sort of because there's so much around and, and technical technology things that you use, uh, you forget among, about the basics really. Which again is hitting a good as a bowler, it's hitting a good length hard, um, um, and uh, sort of just undoing that time and time again without getting too funky. And, and batsmen watch the ball, watch the ball hit the ball type of thing. I mean, I know it sounds simple, but you're sort of so worried about your pick up, your stance, your feet movements, your press, or whatever you want to call it. Where your head's positioned, I mean, at times you've just got to get out there and get in, get get in the battle, and uh, 
Uh, you sound a bit old-fashioned at that. So I, I think what I try and combine is it's, it's old dressed up as new, really. Mm. Um, you want old-fashioned principles because the hard work, pride in the team that you represent, um, taking a long-term view on things and not just wanting to make a, a quick buck as such, but wanting to really be someone who in 30, 40 years' time is looked back on as a, as a top player. Uh, the, those... Uh, and doing well in, in, in games that count. I mean, I'm still uh, a traditionalist in the way that uh, test cricket, first class cricket, I think are the two most important forms of the game and they're, they're, they will tell you how good a player is throughout his career. Uh, but that doesn't mean I, I, there's not a place for the other forms of the game. But when people sort of say, now, well, this in 2020 and, 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 and the white ball game is, it gets a bit sort of, it all gets blown out of proportion. So I, you're trying to sort of, so stay true to the game, really, and, and do what's right for the game um, in the way that you do things and the way that you prepare prepare the Middlesex team and, uh, and and the things that you wanted to achieve, really. Well, I hope you have a, a good year next year with, with Middlesex and with MCC as well. So thank you very much for coming on the Lords podcast. Pleasure. No trouble at all. Lovely. Well, many thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month, which will be in January of 2014, uh, with more cricketing stories from Lords. So remember to follow us on Twitter, we're at Home of Cricket, be our friend on Facebook, and for all the latest news from Lords, just go to lords.org. See you soon.